Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really uh, exciting uh, founder that is joining us. You know, we're going to be walking through the journey that he uh, actually embarked on from, you know, basically working in banks, uh, also uh, other firms, uh, larger corporations, and then to obviously, you know, venturing into starting his own business, which is a rocket ship. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, especially financing in difficult times, how to think about profitability when you're comparing it against growth, how to build a toolbox tool and resources around you when dealing with difficult times, you know, just like the ones that we have been enduring given the macro environment, and then also scaling the business and having everyone, you know, involved and aligned, you know, when it comes to the team. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Michael Hurup Anderson. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So originally born there in Northern Denmark, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> cold. I, Denmark, Scandinavia is cold, but uh, no, uh, jokes aside, um, born and raised in, in Northern Denmark and spent most of my youth, I suppose, uh, you know, playing football and attending school, uh, as you do. Um, and then um, when I hit the at the time of university, I started branching out a little bit and started getting a lot more interested in finance. And that basically took direction of my, my, my master's in finance and then into my first job in, in Saxo Bank in, in finance. And what do you think that caught your attention about finance? Why finance out of all things? That's a really good question. Uh, perhaps my parents were both in finance. Maybe, maybe I got it in through, the, uh, you know, the, through, through birth. Um, so that that's probably always a, a good choice, you know. When when you do stuff in life, you do something to make your parents proud, and I guess I'm I'm no different than anybody else. But uh, but I suppose um, the game in finance of of it's in intellectually extremely demanding and also extremely de rewarding to be able to be up against some of the sharpest, clearly some of the sharpest minds in the world. And you know, if you can make it, then then I guess you you you've been part of an ecosystem that creates value. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's something that I thought of afterwards in the beginning. Didn't pay any attention to it. It was just super fun. And you also, as part of the studies, you came to Virginia, to the U.S. Uh, and I mean, you've traveled, you know, quite a bit. I mean, you've also been in London, uh, originally from Denmark, as we were discussing. Now, how do you think that your worldview has, say, shaped up as a result of living in so many different parts of the world and, and, and also the way that you approach problem solving? Um, well, definitely one thing that I've learned from, from, from being exposed to different cultures is that, you know, there's always a solution. <laughs> there's almost always a solution, uh, you know, if you, if, but it always depends on your viewpoint. Do you come from one end of the other spectrum or the other? I kind of like the idea of breaking it down uh, into what is the real problem uh, and, 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 and trying to embrace that. But clearly, you know, having lived in, in, in the United States and, and London and, and, and having spent time in, in, in all around Europe as well, you know, there are bright people everywhere. So if you can manage to, to engage yourself around smart people, um, you kind of learn from it, right? You, you're supposed to. And, and I think 
not being afraid to be the stupidest one in the room. Uh, one could argue that was easy for me, right? But but if you are if you're okay surrounding yourself with smart people from different countries, it's got to pick up on you at some point. Now, in your case, after you got the master's in finance, you uh, ended up uh, joining Saxo uh, Bank. And uh, this is something that you uh, did for quite a bit. You were there for 10 years, you know, doing stuff uh, in uh, trading, treasuries. Now, 10 years, you know, it, it's a long time. So what do you think kept you for so long? What was that future that you were living into that was so compelling that kept you for so long in Saxo Bank? Well, it was just a really, really exciting and fun place to be. And it actually gave me a lot of challenges. Um, so the company had a way of, for the first, for first, the company grew a lot. So it was not a static organization in any way. It was always, every year was something new. It felt like a, a new organization every year, uh, which I kind of uh, enjoyed that, that ambiguity and that, and that speed. But also the fact that, that you've been, you were thrown into the deep end of the pool quite early on, and for me personally, quite clearly, <laughs> being unequipped without the tools to, to solve those problems, but just being thrown into them and say, well, figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, come ask some people smarter than you. And that whole mentality and culture, I kind of like that. That, that. that really appealed to me. That's why I was there for, for, for quite a while. Um, and, you know, un until I got a great offer to... to um, to try to move to London and, and be part of a brand new team over there, which was also a, a, a growth experience for me, right? So that was kind of fun. And also while you were in London, you experienced uh, other places. I mean, you were there in Deloitte, also Alvarez and Marshall. So what, what, what were some of the biggest takeaways that you got from working at those places? Well, I mean, I think, um, I think definitely, you know, when you were in finance, um, Working and living in London or New York or Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, surrounding yourself with the brightest in that business is, is very helpful. I mean, you know, you, you can probably shoot a movie in, 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 uh, in Greenland if you want to, but I'm sure that there's more talent and equipment in Hollywood, right? So it's a matter of where do you, where do you physically position yourself around smart people and, and, and also challenging assignments. I think for me, being around, being in London for, for, for five years um, with all those challenges that came at the back end of the financial crisis, right? I mean, remember, I moved there in 12, 13, 2012, 13. So it was, it was in the back end of, 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 the, of the financial crisis. There was a lot of work to be done. There was a lot of cleanup to be done. There was a lot of mistakes to learn from, something that, you know, I would never, ever been able to be taught um, during a career. But because you were you were embedded in so many different uh, situations with, with with various people, you could accelerate your. I, I could at least accelerate my learning curve, um, which again, I mean, I guess that that's the an ongoing theme for me. I kind of like that, right? You go into a room, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into, but you go in with the attitude: "Look, I got to try to figure it out. If if not, let me escalate to someone smarter, and then I'm sure." Together we'll figure it out, right? And that is for so many, so many different cool projects. That's exactly what happened. Uh, and and to be fair, it was a unique point in time. I mean, the financial crisis was a was a you know was the first time in in, in a long long time there was such a big meltdown. Uh, uh, and and being exposed to that 
being part of that and, and, and learning from that, I think is something that, you know, you could either sit down and be, be unhappy about it, or you can try to embrace the situation where you're in. I mean, I remember 2008 and nine, it was not fun for anybody, right? You saw Lima and you saw all these guys, but if you sit down and try to learn from, from, from those experiences, maybe you can turn into something positive. I mean, what's the alternative, right? <laughs> so. Absolutely. Now, coming 2017, you know, things started to shift a little bit for you. And uh, obviously it's, it's interesting because all you knew was corporate up until this point. You know, you were probably 38, 39 years old at this point. And, uh, you know, it's very uh, scary to, uh, you know, really leap into the unknown. And that's what you did. So, so walk us through what were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to bring Compass back to life? One of your points is really accurate. It was very scary. But at the same time, I had zero doubts that this is what I wanted to do. I, I was very firm and set in my mindset. I would not allow anything or anybody to discourage me. I mean, when you say you were moving away from a, from a decent paying job in a financial industry in London to move back to Denmark and get paid nothing and then, you know, investing all your savings and all that stuff, people are going to say, that's just a stupid move. Don't do that, right? So, and of course, I had my share of that. On the other hand, I have to say, I got extraordinary support from, from, from my friends um, and, my, and my parents, which was, which was for me, you know, quite helpful um, because when, 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 when I needed to do this, you also need to have a strong belief, not only in your idea, right? I mean, your idea is probably something you're not going to, you're not going to tolerate people saying it's not a good idea because you have your, your mind is so fixed on this. But where at least I was afraid I could be, I could be rocked in a bad direction was other people's influence over my thinking, right? So surrounding myself with positive attitude and positive thinking was very, very helpful. Um, and in hindsight, I, I probably think that was that support from, from, from not only my, my, my parents and, and friends, but also the, the first people around the, uh, you know, the people around the company. I'd say if that hadn't happened, I'm, I'm not sure you would have the energy or the, the stamina to, to, to pull through. Because it's hard to build something from scratch. I mean, I started with a PowerPoint and nothing else, just myself. And a lot of people are going to say, did, did, you're doing it wrong. It's not going to work. You're going to hear this all the time, right? All the time. So the stamina to keep pushing no matter what happens, that for me at least was a, was a huge necessary mental uh, transition. I mean, you needed to build that strength mentally. At least that, that, that's how I, I figured it out along the way. Maybe didn't know from the beginning, but then you figure it out. And what was that day when all of a sudden you're like, my God, I got to do this thing. Time to give my notice. It, 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 I, I can't really point to a single day and moment, um, but but I can point to, a, to a, a, a short period of time when I was in London where I just kept seeing all the opportunities. I, I just, no matter what, I just saw opportunity. I, I just, I couldn't see anything else but upside. I know that that's wrong <laughs> by all means, 
but I couldn't see anything else. But this is this is just a this is a no brainer. I mean, someone has to do this, and um, so that happened over a period of time. In by the summer, summer or of autumn of 2017, and then I went to to my employer, Alvarez Marcel, at the time, and said, "Guys, look, um, can we do an orderly transition here? Because I got something I got to do." And they were extremely supportive, and said, "Look." What you need? Can we help with anything? And let let I mean, super cool. I mean, good for you. And uh, they helped me as much as they could, and then that was it. So, what were the uh, early days like? What happened next? Obviously, you moved to Denmark, back to Denmark, and and then what was next? And then I reached out to. Uh, then the first thing I did was to reach out to a couple of people that I thought could be really good to to have on board on the on on, on the on the project. Uh, some eventually uh, ended up um, joining, and, and and others did not. Um, but then I started to fundraise because, you know, you, you, you kind of need money to, to do stuff. And, um, and, um, that was in 18, early 18, end of, end of 17, maybe. Um, and yeah, I just out and, and, and started to get some seed capital with, with the, with the idea. And as they would say, the, the rest is history, no? So <laughs> I guess for the people that are listening to really get it. What ended up being the business model of Compass Bank? How are you guys making money? So we are full-fledged bank. Uh, that means that we can take deposits from people and we fund ourselves at two and a half, three percent. That's the that's the nature of having a bank license. You can get deposits from retail and corporates. We turn around and we lend that money out to small and mid-sized companies um, at a higher rate, and then that spread between our funding cost and our our interest rates when we lend out. We make it that that that's our profit margin. So that that's what we do. And you were alluding to fundraising. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, 55, 60, 50, 55, 60 million euros. Now, in that uh, approach, I mean, obviously, 2017 is where you guys got started. You've definitely hit some bumpy years, you know, too. I mean, you had COVID, now the macro environment. What has been the experience? of navigating, raising money when it comes to really dealing, you know, with the, those types of uh, bumpy, you know, uh, events that have happened, you know, with, with the economy and with the environment. You're right. We hit not only COVID, but also the, the, the current uh, kind of cold fundraising environment we're in at the moment. One of my biggest um, learning points was, in fact, I had a, I had a, um, a strong support in 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 who actually is our current chairman of of, of the bank, Yepa. Uh, Yepa Bondom is, uh, is 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 a very very talented fundraiser. So he, um, I think he taught me a lot about how to approach it in a structured manner, and also you know navigating the different types of 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 you know cycles that you go through. You know when you when you raise money in the beginning, you need. You need maybe a little bit from 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 wealthy individuals that are willing to take a risk on you as an individual, but then when you when you move through the size, I mean, you start to to raise tens of millions of euros, um, then you know that type of investor would also change, right? So every time you need to change your mindset to uh, to cater for that, which I think uh, Yef has probably be the single most important um, the single most important uh, factor of of of, of Compass learning that transition along the way, right? Um, that has been very important. Uh, and I think for anyone out there right now raising money, just to be clear, 
you know, we, we've raised decent amounts of money. Some has raised a lot more and some has raised less, but we've had hundreds. And I'm not saying that I'm meaning hundreds of rejections, hundreds of rejections. It's just about getting up every day and effectively keep doing it, right? Keep finding out why did they say no? What was the problem here? Was it them or was it us? Did we, you know, was the chemistry wrong? Was the business case wrong? Was the return requirements not right? Whatever it is, right? Figure out what exactly that, that, that's giving you the bumps. But the money is always out there. It's, it is a matter of really, really hard work. And just because you get 10 times or 20 times in a row, people say no. If that's going to cause you to give up, then my advice would be don't, don't fundraise because you're going to get a lot of no's. And I think that's just some stamina and some tough skin that you need to grow and develop if you don't already have it. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how do you go about really going from a rejection to a point of reflection instead of going to a point of questioning yourself, which is a really toxic path? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I guess, at least for, for, for me, having such a strong, complete conviction and faith in the fact that we were doing the right thing, right? I mean, we have a good model. I mean, it works. It's just, there's something, there must be something wrong in the communication because if I just could communicate this correctly, the entire world would think this is a great idea, right? I mean, that's how I think about it. Obviously, that's not true, but, but that's how I feel about it. So for me, it, it, it's always been about how do I communicate more clearly to the investors and how do I communicate uh, better internally uh, so that we get, not forget, when you're fundraising, you're spending a, a decent amount of time on that. You have a whole organization that is running the show behind you, right? Remember, you're not doing this alone. You've got a whole team that is doing fantastic work uh, to support you, right? So getting that communication right and making sure that you're open and just 
Rule number one, don't take it personally. It's not it's not you they don't like. It, it could be a number of things that, that causes them not to invest, right? Don't take it personally. It's nothing to do with you. I love that. Now, when it comes to scaling the business, and it's worth you know, talking about people here because ultimately investors is people that are going to be surrounding yourself with. You know, also about people is, is and I've heard you say that it's easy to hire, but very difficult to fire. So in that challenging aspect, when you figure out that uh, someone is not a fit, I mean, what have you learned about firing? What have you learned about really getting to that point and being effective so that you don't create a a bad environment too, because when you see people that are not performing well, you know, obviously that's like a cancer in the organization and then that can bring others down too. So how, how do you go about that? I think there's a, there's a very, very big difference between how we, we approach these things in, in, in Denmark, Scandinavia, how, how I would have approached it in, uh, in London or how I would have approached it in, 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 uh, in the United States. Um, I think the most important thing that I've learned is, 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 don't wait too long. Um, if you if you you know inside yourself when something is not going to work, um, but also giving everybody, including yourself, a decent chance to fix whatever it is that may not be working. Right? I mean, you 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 need to to set some very very clear boundaries and very clear expectations. Communicating those expectations and giving people the resources to actually fulfill them is absolutely critical to to performance, in my opinion. But also, you know, when things are not moving in the right direction and you don't feel that that's whatever mitigating factors you're trying to put in place is not really working, then it's better for everybody to find a, a, a good solution for that. Because usually what happens is the organization will know quite quickly. And you, 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 you mentioned before, it can, it can go into a cancer. Um, I don't think that's happened for us, uh, but, but the risk is definitely there if we don't address it very, very early on. Um, so addressing it and making sure that the people have the right tools and then if they're really not performing, let them know what's going on. And I've experienced, you know, <laughs> through the spectrum and people being frustrated, um, but I've also experienced people being relieved, saying, look, it's good that you mentioned it because I actually feel the same way and I think I'll be more happy in a different role. Sometimes you can find a different role in the company. We've done that. And sometimes it's better to help them, you know, in another company with a different profile because everybody can perform, but, but most people can perform. But it's, it can be quite challenging to find the right setting and circumstances. That sometimes people can search a lifetime for that without finding it, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's also a cost opportunity on both ends because, I mean, I personally have experienced that and I've made the mistake of having built in the past a company where perhaps I had someone that was not performing and just to be nice, you know, you try to move this person around and, you know, ultimately it's also a cost opportunity for that person as well. So It is. Um, it's much, much better. But I, look, I've done the same thing, uh, both, you know, in previous assignments and, and maybe even here. But because you, you really don't want to, you don't want to hurt people's feelings, do you? So you, you really want to help them. I mean, that comes from the bottom of your heart. Uh, but sometimes that's difficult to, uh, to process sometimes as a leader. What you really want is to put them in a place where they're happy. 
and I may this sound a little bit corny to say, but if people are not performing, usually they know, and they're not happy in their jobs. So giving them the relief to go oh, otherwise that at least that that that's that that's a good path for everybody. Um, but I would say in Scandinavia we are probably a little more inclined to to create an environment where people can thrive um, in various forms. So we will try multiple things before we get to the, the conclusion. Whereas my experience in the U.S. is that they have a shorter there's a shorter period of, of decision where right. They, they execute a little faster in Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland. We do tend to 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 try to find a more holistic approach to this. Um, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's probably not. Now, the current environment, too, the <clears throat> this macro environment has really impacted the way that that things are. No, I mean before the really successful companies were pushed into raising a lot of money. And now those successful companies that raised a lot of money, then they're now so, not so successful anymore because now what the market is asking for is profitability. So how do you think too about profitability versus growth? That's, that's a, that, I, I, that is probably the, the key question right now, right? Um, we built this bank. I mean, because we are a regulated bank, we've always had a requirement to to come up with a credible plan to become profitable quite quickly. Otherwise, you're not allowed to, to run a bank. Um, so for us, we've always been quite focused on moving towards break-even quickly. Um, our core business is now profitable. We have a couple of investment projects that are not yet profitable, but, but our core product, which is credit, is actually making money, which is helpful. Um, but I think, you know, going back a few years, I had multiple, multiple fundraising discussions with, with very, very smart people, very talented people who, who declined to invest in us um, because we were not growing fast enough. We were having too much focused on, on, on profitability. Um, that actually left a lot of money on the table for us in terms of fundraising. But we felt that we made a conscious decision to go against that wave of, of raising a lot of money and then hiring and spending and then see what happens. Profitability will come. We went against that wave. Um, at the time, it felt really, really painful. I did not like that. Um, but I guess fast forward to, to, to 2023, I suppose uh, in hindsight, that decision was, 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 was completely accurate to do that. Remember, we didn't know that at the time, right? We could have been massively wrong, uh, but, but we happened to be right um, based on a number of, of, of assessments. But, but we actually took a, 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 what we believe is an informed risk decision around how do we run this business, right? And our, our choice was, you know, easy and free money is probably going to dry out at some point. Let's get to profitability and show everybody that, that we're here to stay for the long term. Uh, and then, you know, we will have to reassess at that time. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we've done. We haven't done, you know, a five, eight, 10 year business plan with product rollouts. Everything is planned. I mean, it takes longer time to write that plan than, than to actually execute it. So, so it, it's better to be very, very focused, in our opinion. 
on your core. And then we decided to, to instead of expanding our core to a couple of more things, which we easily could do, uh, we decided let's let's go for profitability, and then we we'll, we will expand from that base instead. So just to double click on focusing on your core, let me ask you this: Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Compass Bank is fully realized. What does that world look like? That's a cool question, right? How long time do you got? Um, no, that world of 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 the the fully developed. Compass Bank is probably never going to happen, <laughs> but but I do believe that in, a, in in three years, three to five years, we will have a bank that is completely enabled um, to support SMEs around Europe, not only to to move the balance sheet around the way they need to and make investments through the credit that we can uh, we we can afford them, but also having a complete day-to-day operations and, and operational excellence of focus on that. That means that we can help them with day-to-day decisions. Uh, not that we sit here and do it manually, but through the systems inside and, and the entire AI world that I think finance is going to benefit from probably more than any other business. Perhaps medical industry is the other one that will go. Logistics is also okay. But finance is probably one of the most interesting uh, industries to 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 look at um, when you're looking at AI and what that whole large language model development can do for your risk management, for your pricing, for your product development, for your customers. Just imagine that you can create you can create a tailor made solution for each customer on a mass scale. These two things do not normally rhyme together, but I really do believe that that's what you can do uh, with with uh, in, in the coming years. That is where we are across Europe, having the ability to help them operationally, you know, transaction with their own, you know, with their day-to-day and then their, their balance sheet. I think that world is going to be what I believe we will do our share of the heavy lifting uh, to ensure that Europe remains uh, competitive because there are tough people out there, right? The U.S. is not holding back any anything for anybody. They are always competitive. Asia is coming. The Middle East is doing fantastic things. Africa as well. I mean, this is going to be a very, very, uh, I think it's a very competitive market going forward. But I also have extremely high hopes for how we can lift the entire standard of living. Uh, that's nothing to do with our Compass Bank, but you know where the world is going. In that setting, Right where you improve people into middle class and then upper middle class. In that setting, you're going to need a lot of services for SMEs because those are precisely the ones creating the jobs, creating the growth, um, and having the bulk of all that heavy lifting is being done by SMEs. And that's the way it's always been done. The requirements from that sector is going to multiply into the 10s and 20s. So that means that we need to be able to service that. I want to I want to ask you something here. Imagine, and I want to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. Imagine, I was to put you into a time machine, and I bring you back to 2017 when you're starting to think about doing something of your own. And imagine you're able to enter into that office where your desk was at at Alvarez and Marshall, and you're able to have a sit down with that younger self that is about to put the 
notice. Let's say you were able to give that younger self, that younger Michael, one piece of advice before launching a business, knowing what you know now, what would that be and why? Okay. Well, that's a really good question. I think my advice would be, uh, remember advice or maybe a statement, I don't know, but remember, you're not a victim, right? You chose this, so be man enough to, to, to pull through. It's going to be difficult. Look, no company that's ever been you know, successful in any way or capacity has done that in a straight line. It always goes up and down. It goes backwards. You feel setbacks. You feel, feel things. The pain is actually real. Um, but you're not a victim, right? You chose this and you are making a difference. So, okay, do you have a bad day? Accept it. There's a new one tomorrow. But tomorrow, you show up in the office every day. You show up in the office with a smile and you remember you are the one that's putting this forward, right? You got to be the one to do that. There's no other people. There's no one around you to do it. You got to do it. And that mindset your entire team needs to have. It's not just you. The entire team needs to go into the office believing every day that you are the one that is going to pull this through. The responsibility lies on you. If you can do that and you can have a cool team around you that will do the same, I'd say you come a really long way. I love that. Michael, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, just... Drop us an email. I mean, send an email to us, um, either to myself or, you know, to to our communications department. If you if they want to say hi or or or, or communicate in any way, we're open, always open for 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 fun partnerships and uh, and ideas. Amazing. What is the email account that they should uh, send a note to? Casper. K a s p e r at compassbank.dk. That is directly to our head of communication and marketing, and he will be the one to to be able to do this. Amazing. Well, is he enough? He's probably gonna love. He's probably gonna love me for for giving his email out like that. But <laughs> I love it. Well, hey, Michael, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.